Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello at 2.09 in the morning on October 5th, 1930, the British airship R-101 crashed some 90 miles northwest of Paris. It was just a few hours into a journey that was supposed to take it to Karachi, then a premier city of the British Empire of India. Impacting the ground at approximately 13 miles per hour, the 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas that gave the airship its buoyancy immediately and explosively caught fire. 48 of the 54 men on board died, including Christopher Birdwood Thompson, a labor peer and the Secretary of State for Air, who had staked his policy program on R01's successful first voyage. It was a greater loss of life than that suffered in the more notorious Hindenburg crash of 1937, but incredibly enough, it was not the greatest number of lives to be claimed by an airship accident. And on that record of death and destruction, and why it was tolerated for so long, hangs a tangled story. R101's short life and very rapid end is told by S.C. Gwynn in his new book, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. S.C. Gwynn has written numerous books, including the New York Times bestsellers Rebel Yale and Empire of the Summer Moon. Sam Gwynn, welcome to Historically Thinking. It is very nice to be with you. So you have a great vignette with which you begin sort of in Media Race, uh, the, the book. We've got Lord Thompson, he and his private secretary, the chauffeur and his ministerial car. They stop for tea, of course, on the way to the, the aerodrome. And then two miles short of their destination, the car pulls over. Lord Thompson gets out. He looks towards Cardington. He is Lord Thompson of Cardington. And what does he see there? What he sees is the year, is the year 1930, and he's, he's, he's actually on his way to India. And, the, and he, as he gets to the top of the rise, he looks down on the kind of relatively flat agrarian plain below him, and he sees the largest, basically, object in the world by volume, a 777-foot-long R101 airship. And it's sitting at its, at its mast. It is... It is Extraordinary. I mean, if, if you go there today to Cardington, which is about an hour north of London, you you see the sheds where they built this thing are still there. And they loom. I mean, you can see them from 30 miles away. They're so enormous. And it's just the very size of this thing. And it was just, I think what, what hit him was just the breathtaking size of it. I mean, there's just there was nothing like this on Earth. This was something, you know, larger by volume than the Titanic. And yet, and yet, it is large, lighter than the air in which it floats. So, a very peculiar thing, a very peculiar piece of technology. But it, was it kind of, go ahead. As I was thinking about this and your descriptions of 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 the people who watched R one hundred and one and other ships like it, but especially R one one that night as it went on its six hour voyage, so, uh, the combination of this massive bulk, which the mines, it's bigger than the Titanic, it's enormous, and yet it floats. There's something that scrambles the human perception when you see this thing that's bigger than St. Paul's Cathedral going over London. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it really, it is, as we were saying before we began recording, there's something fantastical and dreamlike 
about these 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 man-made objects. And there was something too, just uh, completely counterintuitive and entirely new to human beings, relatively speaking, about something that didn't obey the laws of gravity. I mean, everything else goes down, right? I mean, if you hold a ball and you drop it, which way does it go? I mean, you know, it goes down. The apple falls from the tree. These things went the other way. Um, and it was just a very gravity-defying nature of it was was astounding. I, even though balloons had done this in the 18th century, uh, it was still astounding to see something like that in that. And so when Thompson gazes down on the plane, I mean, he's looking at that, but he's also looking at, in a sense, in a sense his own work. I mean, this mm. is his, his baby, um, mm. his dream. His dream. Um, they, they arrive, and about what time do they finally launch? They're launching at the 620 area, sometime like that. So it's evening is falling. They've been... The the uh, it was kind of a light drizzle and uh, it's you know we're we're just loading this enormous airship with uh, you know there's going to be 54 people on it and it's going to be going to India, which no one's ever gone to before in uh, in an airship and and so there's this just moment where we're, you know things are being loaded and it's a peculiar thing to watch because the the airship has an, an opening at the bow and things just disappear into the bow into this enormous shape airships in the past put most of the kind of cargo human carrying part they slung it below in gondolas and this this machine has only one 20 foot long car and everything else is inside uh hidden from view it's a cool machine it's a very it's, and well, of course we'll have pictures with the uh, the episode, but they don't they and the, the intricacies of it. I believe these are the if I, if I'm remembering correctly from long ago, these are the engines that are slung beneath it, are the ones that you can climb down into and service yeah. from within. You the uh, mechanics can climb down into the engines and walk in the middle of the engine, I think, or something. Something. Yeah. Something so like in other that. words, they, the the engines, the 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 engines and the propellers, the engine cars, the nacelles yeah. and the propellers were slung five of them below the the envelope. They were they were visible from the outside, um, and they were each you know these very heavy six hundred fifty horse diesels um, that had been for the first time adapted to use in the air. And that was where all right all the power came from, and everybody else was except the people in this little control car were stuck up inside this massive bulk. Yeah, and there are sort of uh, promenade there are windows on the sides that you can look out, and many of the descriptions of, of people looking up from the ground in say London or for Hastings as the R one hundred one heads out across the English Channel, or they can see silhouettes moving behind the windows, like, in a, you know, mannequins moving back and forth, silhouettes across like a department store window. Yes. And if you can imagine that, yes. And so you, as night fell, you, you now have a band of light um, yeah. that, that through which these antic figures kind of roam back and forth. It's uh, it was, but that was the only evidence that there was that all of those things were inside that airship. And on board, are those fifty-four, and they're all men, despite Doctor Who. I, I discovered in my in my research and the you know deep academic research for this episode, I discovered that the Doctor Who plot point hinges upon there being one woman on board who he <laughs> rescues from R one hundred and one. I don't know if you discovered that, but uh, I did. Oh no, but uh, it was it, but it was one of the great mysteries of R one hundred and one. They found uh, uh, after the crash, they found yeah, a, a it, woman's shoe. 
Yes. And I said, Whoa, you know, why would, why would there be a, a, a lady's shoe on exactly. this downed aircraft? And there was all sorts of speculation about what that was. And was she Thompson's mistress who had come on board? I mean, who, who knew? Nobody knew. As it turns out, there wasn't one on board, but uh, Doctor Who just went with that one. <laughs> yeah, they went with that one. The uh, But there are, in addition to Thompson, sort of every luminary, at least half of them, of the British airship, airship establishment. And it's quite an extraordinary cast of characters. Yeah, it was, it was um, you know, the British in the 1920s, they hadn't done very well in World War One in building airships, which are, you know, these, these rigid, r- rigid airships, very large steel and aluminum framed things. They hadn't done very well with it. But after the war, they really got serious about it. And this, this kind of establishment grew up, the Royal Airship Works, which was going to build the world's greatest, um, you know, air, rigid airships. And, uh, and yeah, most of these people who uh, were on board this, this ship when it went down. The, um, so let's, R101, we've got that launched. Let's dial it back about, what, 25 years? Because this has been going on for 25 years. Mm-hmm, yeah. To, from Count Zeppelin's, Graf von Zeppelin, his uh, first experiments, um, and what you ca- what you catalog in the book, and as I say it in the intro, is quite an amazing litany of disasters. Um, airships, it turns out, despite my own childhood fantasies, which I realized I recalled as I read the book, airships were awful, um, and yet somehow. Every accident leads to a greater enthusiasm for the concept. Could you could you dig it, tease out yeah, this I, history I, for us? Count Zeppelin is the model for that. And uh, so, if you go back, I'll do very quickly do history of, of uh, lighter than air things. You know, in the 18th century, they were the first. You know, b- balloons went up, and they you, you couldn't you couldn't steer them, um, and they just kind of went wherever the wind or God wanted them to go. And um, in the 19th century, the French figured out a way to actually steer one. You know, you could you could put a balloon up there and put hot air or hydrogen in it or whatever, which were easy to make or, or get. And you could steer it somewhere. You could make it go somewhere. In fact, the word dirigible, the French word to direct or to steer is diriger. And so uh, something that was dirigeable was a dirigible, right? So it was, it was a steerable balloon. Um, the problem with these things is you couldn't lift much with them because you, the lifting ability of the balloon was only as great as however much gas you had up there. And so you, these things, you know, they could lift maybe a man, maybe two men, they couldn't do anything. So you weren't going to be able to carry cargo or do anything else. So along comes Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, this, this military guy with a magnificent uh, walrus mustache. And in 1900, he produced the first rigid airship and what it was it was a, imagine a large kind of steel uh, structure inside of which are a number of hydrogen filled gas bags and the size of in other words you, uh, balloons tended to collapse upon themselves if they didn't have structure so you put the structure on you could put all these hydrogen gas bags inside and which meant that you could lift things and you could lift relatively large amounts of stuff and this was Zepp, von Zeppelin's innovation. It took a while. He would crash after crash. And this is what had, this kept, kept going on. Um, and he was, he was sort of mocked and derided as this crazy dreamer who these things were never going to work. They were 400 and some feet long and they kept crashing. And 
And so there was, but there was this one, it's not, he made progress over the years. He got better at staying in the air. And this was at a time when, you know, the Wright brothers could only stay in the air for, you know, not even 30 minutes. Um, and so von Zeppelin at some point made a, a long flight, which revolutionized everything. He actually went somewhere, turned around and came back. And I think it was a 12 hour flight or something. Uh, suddenly he's the celebrated entrepreneur of Europe. He then enters this contest where it's going to be a 24 hour flight. He goes, he's got to go to, a, he, this is in Germany. He's got to go somewhere, turn around, fly the thing back. And if he makes it, he's going to get these big government contracts. Along the way, the airship kind of shows, it has many, many weaknesses, but it shows one in particular. Uh, they're very, well, it shows two. Uh, one, they're very vulnerable to wind. Anything that big, imagine a sail that is like four acres, five acres, six acres big. I mean, imagine if you've ever been in a sailboat, you realize what happens to even on a sunfish with a large puff of wind, very vulnerable to wind. And this thing actually gets blown across the countryside, bump, bump, bumping along the ground. And then, then it demonstrated its second weakness, which is at some point the hydrogen ignited and it went up in a giant hydrogen fireball. Um, and this is in 1908. And it, this should have ended everything. In fact, for some weird reason, the Germans took it upon themselves to make, to kind of make him the sort of pet patriot. They gave him a lot of money. They said, look, he's, even though he failed, even though the thing blew up, he had still flown farther than anybody. And they gave him a bunch of money. He then started his company. At what, what, this shows several things. One, there, there were fundamental weaknesses with these things that would persist through all of their, right on R101 would be a classic example of both those weaknesses. So you, you basically had, uh, you had that going on, but you also, so why, why did they persist, getting back to your question, and one of the reasons is just straight out nationalism and national pride. There was something about these things that was linked to national pride, technological advance, pride in technological advance. Nobody else could do what his machines could do. The Wright brothers weren't even close to staying in the air that long or carrying that much weight. And so there was this kind of, and, and this would rise again and again and again, kind of, I call it just it's nationalism. It's, it's some form of, you know, the, the, the Germans were the first to, to fall into it. And, uh, the British in a big way were the second to fall into it with the French mixed in there somewhere too. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. And the Americans, they all mm -hmm. had these, these dreams of kind of technological supremacy. And what R101 was, was an attempt to fill the world, you know, full of airships and change air travel. Um, yeah. There's a uh, part of this is by 1914, you can imagine it's somehow conceivable to imagine airships going fast distances in a way that's impossible to imagine even the planes of 1914, the heavier than air aircraft, it's easier to imagine than them going that distance, I, I think is, is part of the, a, there's a conceptual problem there. Right. And in fact, you know, if you, if you uh, look at say, let's say going to India from London in, in 19, in the late 1920s, you were, you know, in a plane, you were looking at 26 bone rattling stops in this incredibly noisy machine. And by the way, planes crashed all the time too. Um, mm -hmm. And this incredibly noisy machine, an airship could make it with one stop and was just floating happily over the surface of the earth. I mean, theoretically, that's what it was. So you could, you know, it was a, it was a comfortable voyage. It wasn't, I mean, in planes, you, you ended up getting oil splattered all over you. Again, they were, 
they were also they were also very dangerous. But um, it, it was very plausible into the 1920s and through the, the middle of the 20s. And, you know, think of, remember, Lindbergh does this thing in 1927, which is an incredible feat and in part proves how brave you would have to be to do that. Mm-hmm. By the time he had done that, there had been, you know, uh, uh, the British had gone across the ocean two ways in an airship in 1919. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, so in other words, there, were, there was reason to believe, in addition to all these other considerations, that the long range, that the future of long range travel, not short range, nobody thought that, that airships were going to be traveling between London and Paris commercially. But people did think they would be traveling between London and Singapore, London and South Africa, London and New York, Los Angeles, Montreal. They really did think that. What A couple other things stand out as, as problems with airships, and we don't have to get into the litany of, of how sort of harmful Zeppelins were in the German service during World War One to the people who flew them, uh, but not necessarily, not rarely to people underneath them when they dropped bombs. That was, they, they were really, uh, they really were very good at killing off German uh, soldiers or airmen, very but not so great, at, very efficient. Uh, but one of the problems it, it, it struck me is just the entire size of the thing. There just, there isn't the way that Zeppelin, that the, the uh, dirigible has to flex. Uh, they don't have the technology to handle that. Uh, the materials aren't up to it. I mean, even the, the, they don't have the ability to calculate the weights or what will happen when um, when uh, the hydrogen gas expands or contracts as it uh, ascends and descends in altitude. These are all problems that really ha- would only be solved by um, electronic computers. You would need an electronic computer to work out some of that stuff um, and and the and more advanced materials. As you uh, described, the gas bags are made out of uh, cattle intestines, which is, you know, not bad. I mean, you know, cattle uh, sheepskin turns out to be one of the best ways of publishing a book. I mean, there'll be medieval parchments will last a lot longer than things published on paper. It's a really good, in a way, it's a fantastic material. But it's, um, but they don't, the advances in materials technology and even just the the calculations, uh, calculation technology is just not up to dealing with the the problems of airships. No, they were a contradiction in terms. I mean, you had these, these giant structures that were, uh, as you pointed out, the, the gas bags, the 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen was in, in located in gas bags made out of cattle intestines, some of which were 10 stories high, holding 500,000 cubic feet. It, but also the airship was wrapped with linen. I mean, they couldn't, you know, you, weight was such an issue. You could not clad the thing in iron or something. It would never get off the ground. So it is a linen, rather thin, doped, meaning made waterproof, um, with the treatment, uh, you know, and uh, the which were incredibly flimsy. So that, in other words, the thing that was protecting the gas bags, which were so fragile you could put your finger into one of them, was you know a very fine uh, piece of linen, <laughs> and and these were these were contradictions. As you also point out, they they were unbelievably difficult to fly. I mean, you they were subject to not not just wind, uh, but any change in atmospheric conditions uh, when it got hot, everything changed about the buoyancy of the aircraft or, or, or got cold 
or humidity levels, uh, air density, all these things radically changed how much lift the, the ship had. So you had these things occasionally sort of rocketing up 4,000 feet and then plunging back down 5,000 feet. They were, the Germans were the only ones who really, really right. figured out how to do this. Um, if and you're a German that, airship guy who survived the First World War, uh, well, congratulations, Zeigesund. Uh, but second, um, you probably were good at it. You might, uh, you had, you had learned a lot. I you mean, had you had learned, learned what not to do. Yeah. And it's, you had asked something earlier that I wanted to go back to is that, you know, one of the, Von Zeppelin's idea, he, this, he, his idea of building these giant rigid airships was not to carry cargo and it was not to carry passengers and it was not to make a passenger airline. Those were, that is not what he wanted to do. He had one goal from the beginning. He was a career military man. This was going to be a weapon, period. That's what it was. It was meant to rain terror down on Europe. And that's what happened in World War I. He built a bunch of them, and they were unleashed at seven different cities in Europe. Um, Eng England, by far, got the worst of it. But these were – so the world was introduced to the first long-range bomber. That was the Zeppelin. Uh, the first weapon of mass terror – that was a Zeppelin. Um, and, and really, uh, really the first time that humankind understood that it could be annihilated from above by something other than a thunderbolt. I mean, that, this is the first time. Mm -hmm. and, and London bore the brunt of it. And these, so you had these waves of airships coming across the English Channel and these guys dropping bombs, some of them pretty big. Um, they were... Uh, you know, they, they absolutely terrorized the people of, of England. Uh, and, it, and at some point, it became clear that these were like the world's worst weapons of war that had ever been designed because you hard to navigate, very difficult to fly. They, they were often so far off course, they, they thought they were bombing London and they were bombing some farmer's fields 100 miles north. And, um, and then the, the, the second problem they had was when the British uh, uh, fighter planes figured out that if you fired a a uh, in, a, a a phosphor bullet or a tracer bullet Tra a tracer, yeah. into a large a hydrogen gas bag, you had was a very satisfying result. Uh, we've only there's only one real good photograph or film of an airship going up in flames, and we all have seen it, and that is the Hindenburg in 1937. But this happened all the time. It happened all the time. During World War One, I. I mean, I don't know how many there were seventy-five hydrogen fireballs. You know, German hydrogen fireballs. Later, American hydrogen fireballs, French hydrogen fireballs. You know, Britain and including R one hundred and one. So that we all had that in our minds, right? That moment, the oh, the humanity moment, right? Okay, mm -hmm. that happened over and over again. It gets back to your, which you at some point you called it zombie, the zombie idea that doesn't die. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's uh, and I. Hadn't realized. I always thought, oh, it was the hydrogen that made them dangerous, but it's not. Because when you look at the American airship disasters, uh, including Helium. the worst one ever, the Akron, which off the coast of Atlantic City, 48 men died, including I think a rear admiral, um, died in a thunderstorm, caught in a line of, of, of thunderstorms, um, and there was helium. It's just that these things inherently, the, the size of the structure, the technology they have to build it and to calculate how to build it and how to fly it, um, it, it can't work. It just simply can't work. You really, you, I, I, 
Well, maybe you have such an understanding because you grew up right near where the Akron went down. But anyway, you have a very good understanding of it. it that's that it illustrates the point that these things had all of these problems. The Akron, to me, was the most tragic of all of the uh, yeah. the airship crashes. And I'm thinking this is 1933, right? And uh, yeah. after R101, but it 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 gets caught in in a basically a series of thunderstorms off the. Uh, off the New Jersey coast in the Atlantic Ocean, and it's in March. And it literally flees for hours trying to get away because one of the, another thing that an airship cannot do is to land in a storm. It can't possibly do that because it will be beaten to pieces by the wind on the ground. It can't. So in other words, it's unlike a, a plane that could land theoretically anyway or a ship that can find a safe harbor, you can't do that. So the Akron's up there. It, you know, it, it's flying into a thunderstorm, turns around and flees the other direction. Meanwhile, these wild changes in um, air, particularly up and down drafts in, in American thunderstorms, which don't really happen so much in Europe, just wild, you know, ride up thousands of feet and then back down again and then up and just this crazy, it's this pathetic kind of tragic flight from storms that they couldn't get away from and they couldn't land. And eventually they get slammed down into the ocean and the thing kind of breaks in half and everybody hits the water and dies. But it, it was, it, it was, it was a, the example of even get rid of hydrogen, which was the world's worst idea. Okay. You still got huge problems. But uh, in 1930, they're still bound and determined. Yes. Uh, the British government, the ministry of air ministry for air is determined to build a, a network of, airship terminals and uh, a fleet of airships that will circle the globe. Um, so why? What, what, is, what is the Imperial Airship Scheme? The Imperial Airship Scheme is wonderful. This is Lord Thompson, Christopher, this is Christopher Birdwood Thompson. This is his... We should probably talk about him. This is probably the the point to talk about him. He's a very curious prophet he, uh, for the imperial airship scheme, we have to explain why. In some ways, why. he's perfect for it because he's entirely a man of empire. You know, remember mm -hmm. the British Empire is teetering. It came out of World War One with the largest empire in the history of the world, and yet it's it's under assault from you know we know historically about what happened in Ireland and South Africa and India and on and on and on. Right, things are cracking in the empire, but they but so we come out of this. Thompson is a. a many generations of the most distinguished military people in India. He was born in India. He comes straight out of the Raj, right? And he uh, he spends his whole career as a lifer in the, in the British military fighting in all these legendary places with, you know, Lord Kitchener here and and uh, and there. And 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 so Thompson in ways is he he's this kind of He's this man of the latter day empire. And what our what 101 will be is it will be kind of a, a, a last gasp in some ways. There were many last gasps before the empire crumbled and went down, but many last gasps. But this would be one of them. And so he was this kind of fascinating guy, very debonair, fluent in many languages, so spoke French better than anybody in the British army. And at the Treaty of Versailles, he was kind of a big deal. And, uh, and he was made Secretary of State for Air, which is like, as I say, a very Shakespearean kind of title. Um, and he takes this job and, and he comes up, the, he becomes the point man on this plan. And, and here's the plan. The plan is that they're going to, 
the British are going to at, we're going to take the best of the German technologies of that were developed during the war, and they're going to improve on them, and they're going to make airships safe, which they emphatically were not, but they're going to do this. And what they're then going to do is they're going to launch fleets of these things, these giant things into the air, and they are going to link this this giant British Empire together. So, you know, what would t- we used to take 12 days to get to India would now be four, you know, which was a, a month to get to Australia would now be 11 days. I mean, literally compressing space and time, the world would come closer together. Everything would be stitched together, the British Empire. Not, and not only would this be British technology doing it, but it would link all of these far-flung pieces of the empire together. And it was this great vision of, of a new empire. And it wasn't, the old empire was the kind of pounding piston, you know, our ships and guns are bigger than yours and we rule the seas. This was going to be, our, this, our wonderful technology was going to link the world by air travel. And uh, R-101 was the poster ship, was the, was the, the, the thing that was going to be among the first proofs that you could do this. It was going to fly to Karachi, which was then in India, and back. And Thompson was going to get off that airship, trailing clouds of glo- glory, and stomp into the uh, Imperial Airship Conference and announce that the future was here. I just did it, guys. This is what we're going to do. We're going to spend millions and millions of dollars, and we're going to populate the air, the air skies of the world with British airships. That's the vision. That's the Imperial Airship Scheme. And despite this stereotypically imperial background and all the description of him, uh, he's, as I said in the beginning, he's been ennobled by Ramsay MacDonald, who's the leader of his party, which is the Parliamentary Labor Party. uh, And he's ascended to the House of Lords with the election of the first labor government in in British political history, which, you know, for... Probably the rest of Thompson's family was like saying Attila the Hun has arrived for tea, <laughs> along with 50, 55 of his best friends. He was a socialist. Um, he was one of them Kame types. He, yeah, he, he was, was I mean, he was a serious socialist. And, and so was Thompson. So he is, Thompson is a, a type of creature which doesn't make a lot of sense in 2023. He's an imperial socialist. He's he an imperialist socialist. Yeah, one might say that was a contradiction in terms, in some ways. Um, he, he didn't think so. <laughs> he didn't think so, but he was—he uh, was, and he—he he was. Uh, nobody that he knew, none of his close acquaintances, would were were labor. I mean, he was a socialist, and the socialists then, you know, believed in the nationalization of all the big industries. You know, the, the rail and coal and steel and things like that, and. And a lot more government control of everything. And, and part of what was going on with R101, which was, was Thompson's seizing control, in effect, which of things that had been privatized before. He was, the government was now going to build this airship, was going to show that it could be done because that was the socialist way. We were going to do this uh, this way. And and he was, uh, yeah, he was an interesting choice. Uh, he, his, uh, his friendship with Ramsay MacDonald, the first Labour Prime Minister, was what got him his job. He, he really wasn't all that qualified for it. But it was interesting when he was made a lord. Uh, he, uh, you can you you get to choose what you want to be. A, I mean, as far as I can tell, you get to choose what you would like to be a lord of. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be Lord Kitchener of Khartoum or whatever you want, mm-hmm. Lord Lord whatever. Uh, and he he chose Cardington, which is this gritty little industrial suburb, you know, where airships were built, the exotic world of British airships. He chose that. Um, so he was Lord Thompson of Cardington, Lord Thompson of of 
airships, if you will. So he was very closely linked. Uh, and we don't have to get into the right now. We'll leave this for people reading the book. The relationship with with a Romanian princess. I mean, I don't want to stereotype, but she is a somewhat status climbing Romanian princess. I'm not yeah. saying that all Romanian princesses are like that, but um, you know, you can see how that would happen. It was the toast, uh, the toast of literary Paris in 1908. Uh, Marcel she, Proust wrote poems to her. She was a celebrated thing. <laughs> and it probably was maybe her high heel that was found in the crash site. Well, Who knows? But, it was Maybe. It's thought. It's thought that that's what it was, and that he Thompson, who was just head over heels for her, was the he. It was thought that he had brought that along with a little rug he had brought that was a sentimental um, thing. But yes, their 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 relationship in some ways, and and right, we don't have to spend too much time on this. But she was, you know, he 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 was trying to impress her, and and. One of the elements of him going to India and back, and one of the elements here, and it was not a small one, is that he had been offered, nobody knew it at the time, the Viceroyship of India, which was ruling over 320 million people uh, in the largest uh, residence of any head of state in the world, a 400,000 square foot palace. Um, And he would be essentially the, the ruler of one of the largest countries on earth. Uh, this was partly to impress her, and not only that, but she was from kind of Paris, Paris, London, and Romania, depending on the month. <laughs> the airship scheme also brought them closer together because now there was only four days, you know, to travel mm. between them. And anyway, Martha's all wound through this thing, but it's a it's a fun subplot. Let, let's talk about the capitalist airship versus the socialist airship because yeah. this is related to this, and this is a, I think this was made into a big deal at the time. Maybe it's a little less of one than it, maybe too big a deal. But certainly, uh, the the capitalist airship is R100, and the socialist airship is R101. So we've talked about R101. And uh, R100 is, I mean, it's got an extraordinary pedigree in and of itself. The chief calculator for it is none other than, well, Neville Shute, as he took as his pen name, the guy who wrote On the Beach, which yeah. was a, like a pretty big novel and then film huge. in the in the 50s and huge 60s. Novel. Uh, huge novel. And... Uh, and the chief designer is for our British listeners is Barnes Wallace. Yes, the Barnes Wallace of the Dam Busters, the man who designed the, the bouncing bomb, the and the entire technique of taking down the the Sorpa and the rest of the dams along the Ruhr. So, right. as I said at the beginning, it's uh, it's a crazy cast of characters are sprinkled throughout the entire story. But the R one hundred, fatally for the R one hundred one, it seems to me reading the book. Fatally, the R100 was successful. <laughs> yes. So what what Tom, what Thompson came up with his his scheme was he was going to have two air going to build two airships, and these were going to be done by the mid to late twenties, and then they were both, and one was going to be basically on a straight industrial contract with the you know Vickers private company. Um, it was just going to build. This was going to be the capitalist airship. It was just going to be built on a government contract, and there was, and it was going to be cost pretty strictly controlled. It was not meant to have ad, much advanced technology, and it didn't. It was meant to be this kind of one way to go, if you will. And R one hundred one. Meanwhile, that and Thompson really didn't care about R one hundred. Never even visited where it was being built. What he really cared about was R101, which was going to get all of this wild new technology, like lifting diesels into into uh, airships, which was a little bit nuts, um, and uh, and have all this 
a lot of material science and technology and engine technology and all sorts of things that the other airship and technology that had to do with holding the gas bags in place that the R1 the R100 did not have. So that this was the socialist airship and this thing operated on cost plus. Cost plus mm-hmm. meaning well whatever you need you're going yeah. to get it and it's going to It's the gold plated airship. It's the gold plated uh, airship. And so it's like it's very much it reminds me very much of the F35 actually. Actually uh, that's a good yeah, very it cool. really is. Yeah, and I mean, it was it's everything loaded into it. In fact, a lot more than it ever should. It was it was way over improved. Somebody did a diagram one showing all of the technology that was on this thing, and and so our our one hundred and one just became this thing. And everybody, it was the celebrated ship. It was the you know it it was our uh, 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 R one hundred was the, actually the first one to launch and went to Montreal and back, or and and actually farther than that. And successfully crossed the ocean in a in a, uh, a voyage that was had so many near fatality fatal accidents in it. It was ridiculous. It was amazing that the thing ever made it. But it did it did make it back. But it wasn't the ship that everybody was wild about. And you know that they said at some point that they estimated that a million people came to CR one hundred and one and in Cardington at her mast in the I think two months before or a month and a half before she launch for India. So it, it, it was an interesting thing. So the capital series was sort of forgotten, uh, even though it did some remarkable things, even though it was successful in its own way. Although to look at the actual particulars of that voyage, you'd think it wasn't so successful. But yeah, our 101 was, 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 and it was Thompson's baby and the one he cared about. And the one that was going to show more than, I mean, people had gone to, uh, airships had gone to across the Atlantic before, but no one had ever gone where or done the particular voyage um, that our, our 101 did. But the other, another, I guess, another spur to the R101 was the success of the Graf Zeppelin right. in circumnavigating the Earth, which God knows how they managed to do that. That, it but that, made, that, made, it, that made it seem like, well, if, they could, that, if the Germans do it, then we have to do it. And we have to do it with our own technology, not German technology. Yeah, that's a good observation. There was the, the one, there were so many accidents over and over again. And, and the, it, it, you know, that the logically or rationally, you have to say that these things were dangerous and they weren't getting less dangerous as time went by. And there was this one exception to this, which was the Graf Zeppelin, which is the German word for Count Zeppelin. And the, it was pilot, what, the Germans were the ones who really know how to fly these things because it was very, they were very difficult. And if you didn't know how to fly them, you were in trouble. They were like the 1927 Yankees of airships, and the people who flew the Graf Zeppelin were the 1927 Yankees. They were the best airship people in the history of the world, and they were better than anybody. And they had this ship a lot smaller than than R101. But yeah, they flew. They they successfully flew it to South America and back. They successfully flew it to to the United States and back. They successfully took it to Japan and then over to the West coast. And it was this celebrated thing and everybody did indeed. And it drove Thompson, Lord Thompson crazy because people said, look, come on, these guys are doing it. In (laughs) fact, the graph was a one-off. The graph was one, it was, it was too small ever to be commercially viable itself, but it was, it was, it should have been the exception that proves the rule. Mm -hmm. Meaning that these things were bloody dangerous and they were all going to crash. Well, except for this one. And it, mm-hmm. it, in fact, it, it what it did was it proved to people that hey, if the, as you just said, if the Germans can do it, why can't we do it? And it was a peculiar 
kind of glitch in the system. And I and one of the reasons that R101 met its grisly fate was, I get back to nationalism, British trying to emulate or surpass Germans. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, let me ask you, uh, your previous books, your New York Times bestsellers on Stonewall Jackson and Quanah Parker and the End of the Comanches. Okay, I can see 19th century America, rich pageant of 19th century America. Uh, and then airships, uh, Christopher Birdwood Thompson. What's the what's the path that you walk from those to him? Uh, I think the best way to explain this is is that I am a journalist by training. I spent my whole career mostly in, as a magazine writer mostly, and the bulk of that with Time Magazine in various mm-hmm. places. And uh, and as a journalist. You are the opposite, I guess, of some professor at Oklahoma State who's focused on one particular part of history, and that's his or her career, you know, and kind of mm. sticking with the I've heard of it. I've heard of it happening. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, and as a journalist, it's like whatever you write is at the bottom of somebody's birdcage on Monday, and then you move on. And I yeah. think journalism tends to attract people with the attention spans of a gnat, basically. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but we don't, but we, we like, we, we like moving from thing to thing. And it's part of what it is to be a journalist from story to story to story and not just doing one thing all the time. So part of it is just who I am. Then I just, I want to do the best story that I can. Now I happen to be very interested in the civil war. So two books about that. Um, Comanches. Now this again, seems to make sense, but um, I live in Austin. I, you live in Austin. I mean, that's, I you know, that's, you live in, it's the edge, and it, the, the edge of a Comanche territory. Anybody with an interest in history yep. is going to know that you're on the edge of that. Comanche and region. the reason I wrote about Comanches is because, in fact, I was right here. And, yeah, you know, I started hearing about this tribe that I'd never heard of before. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that is what happened. But, you know, then I wrote a book about football. And it was a, a I wrote about the basically reinvention of the game of football. These two guys invented something called the air raid, which basically changed football from a pat from a running game to a passing game, which it is today. Uh, Mike Leach and, and Hal Mummy. That was just that grew straight out of a, a cover story in a magazine. I just thought it was a great story. This airship story also, to me, was just a great story. And what I was—I don't know if you've ever read a British historian named James Morris. Um, later became Jan Morris, I think maybe yep. the first great trans historian, but, uh, <laughs> but he's just, I mean, he, he, he wrote a, as, as James, he wrote, uh, a trilogy called Pax Britannica. Um, mm-hmm. the last of which was called Farewell and it was about the history of the British empire. And it's just flat brilliant. It just knocks me down how brilliant it is. And the last volume was the Farewell of the Trumpets. And it was kind of, I was talking about the British Empire kind of teetering, wobbling, and then trying to save itself and then going down. That's what it was about. And in the middle of that was three or four pages about this airship R101. And I read and I went, and it was all about how kind of R101 was kind of this emblem of the British Empire trying to save itself. And I thought, wow, that's what a story, incredible, you know. And Mm -hmm. then I did what all, you know, highly trained historians do. You know, I, I Googled it to see, like, who had done this before. And uh, it, and there was hardly anything on it. Uh, I mean, something forty years ago was the only significant work. Uh, and boring too. I mean, that's just, it, it. It strikes me uh, reading some of the 
popular historians today, um, I won't name names, but I look in the back of their book and I always find there's one really boring doctoral dissertation yes. <laughs> from, 50, from 40 years ago that's the kernel of what's a really good story. Yeah. But it was told by a guy who was writing with 10 thumbs and no sense of humor. And so there's, it's, so that seems like, you know, soup's on, you know, let's, yeah, let's, that, let's go. The, 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 the 40 year old book I was right, was talking about wasn't quite that, although there were other things that were, but it was, it, these people weren't professional writers. I mean, I don't know, the field was pretty much wide open. So I said, what a great, what a great tale. Um, and, uh, and, and so to answer your question, it, one, it was a story of it, it, it had that big picture end of the British Empire kind of feel to it, which I like. I like, you know, the Comanches were the last great barrier to westward movement of the United States mm -hmm. of America. I mean, there's the big, big ideas. I mean, Stonewall Jackson was a big idea book. You know, he, he, mm -hmm. we're talking about the Civil War and how it was won or lost. So I like that, too. But, yeah, it was just. I, I tend to go for the best story. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no. Um, I, I wanna, let me ask you a question. I wasn't prepared to, but you know, you've now written several popular histories, many, uh, and uh, you must read a lot of historians. Uh, what do you wish historians would learn about writing? Um, Be frank. Mostly, it mostly it is it is what to leave out, and and the it is not what you put in; it's what you leave out, and. Uh, an example of this, I will use my myself as uh, my own error as an example of this. So I'm writing uh, Empire of the Summer Moon, which is the story of the rise and fall of the Comanches, the most powerful tribe in American history. And it's all about, you know, it's also about this family, um, uh, this little nine-year-old girl who gets kidnapped by Comanches in the middle of all this thing. And it's, it's a big kind of sweeping tale of the, the frontier. And, mm. and when I turned in my manuscript, at some point, I, I had this family, um, the Parker family, had come to Texas on a kind of a long labyrinthine kind of Virginia to Illinois and so forth. And they were predestinarian Baptists and they were moving with the family. And it's a really interesting tale. And I spent months on this really interesting, you know, these they, they, here they moved to here and there and there and there and there. And so I had all this great stuff and I just put it in at like 50 pages, you know, <laughs> And, and my editor, who's a great editor for this very reason, he goes, Sam, you know, maybe you're in a good book here, but you know, this, when you get to this part, it's just it's kind of a little boring. What I had done was I had done a deep dive in the middle of a book that really wasn't about predestinary baptism and, you know, migrations of religious cults across. I mean, that wasn't about, but I, but I was so good. I got to use my material and do it. What historians cannot resist. And so what I did, he, the minute he said that, I went home and I cut the 40 pages, cut it, gone. And it would have killed my narrative. Seriously, it, would've, it, it really, yeah, would not have been a bestseller without it. What historians cannot help themselves is just going down the bunny hole, using their, you know, using their, um, their, their research. Because what happens is you get very wedded to your, we're very kind of, you know, it's your research, man. You spent months on that. And really, you know, and in the Civil War, the worst the worst sins are you just, man, you you know exactly what the 13th Georgia was doing at 1045 a.m. at Cold Harbor. And man, do you have that down because you read the regimental histories and you know everything about that and you're going to put it in. So we hear every last bullet that 13th Georgia fires. 
and it deadens the narrative. And I think mm-hmm. that I, using myself as, as an example there, I think part of it is editorial failure because that's what editors are supposed to do. They're supposed to say, dude, you, you shouldn't have put in 100 pages in Sam Houston in the middle of that book. I didn't, but I mean, had I done it, it kills the narrative. No one cares. Stick with what you're writing about. It's, I think, editorial failure because you can't at some level, but, but in a lot of particular academic histories, there's no, there's, there seems to be a, a premium on how much of a data dump you do. You know, they dump the data and the more you mm-hmm. dump, the more everyone admires you for having done that research. But it, anyway. Best editorial advi- advice I ever got. I mean, well, most of the best advice in writing is about editing, isn't it? Now that I think about it, now that I think about it. And one of them is murder your darlings. Murder your uh, little darlings. And it's yep. so hard to murder your little darling. That's Samuel Johnson. And it is so hard it? because it's like, you know, I spent months on that research and a lot of it was nobody had ever done it before. Nobody, sure. I had stuff nobody ever had before. I found collections and archives. I was very, and it, it really, it had no place in my book. And yet it was absolutely wonderful and <laughs> but it has no place in my book. And in, in the airship book, there's all kinds of I mean, tangents. What did you what did you leave out though? I mean, all, I mean, trust me, there's so many temptations to go off mm. into various tangents, you know. Like to talk about the you know, Romanian princesses and the Oh yeah, we and the, that forever. Yeah. But that the the Belle Epoque Paris literary scene. That that's sure. about yeah. forty pages. And you could do great research and you could break ground and you could do all this and nobody wants to read about 40, you know, they, maybe a couple well, of paragraphs it, about how Marcel Proust wrote her love poems and Andre G thought she was wonderful. And I mean, you know, mm-hmm. but you don't need to go. And it's also- but but, but it, this is the, this is the thing, sorry, but where, you know, I, this is all Hemingway always gets quoted about the icebergs, you know, and that even if you cut it, it will still be apparent that it's there. I'm not always certain that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a way in which writing about uh, Thompson and his relationship with this Romanian princess, uh, you can, because you've done all that work and because you've thought about right. Proust writing poems, that in the few sentences, relatively few sentences that are or paragraphs that are left about her, that I think the rest of the iceberg contributes to that. I, at least I, I, I think, although. I think you're right, because it also, when you, you absolutely at that moment command the material, you have incredible command of the material which allows mm-hmm. you to write sentences that that reflect command you know that you you know like i really know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. yeah. because i i've not written the hundred pages that you're not going to get on it you know i <laughs> what is the iceberg in it what's that what's the iceberg oh it's something he says about that um uh when you cut out all the stuff it's like cutting out the bottom it's only leaving the top of the iceberg oh and that's, you know, and, um, and that, um, so, you know, with that. I know, I get it. Make, I, I, yeah. I get it. You know, the, I, I can think of the best example of Hemingway in that regard. So my, maybe my single favorite short story ever written is called Big Two-Hearted River. Have you read it by Hemingway? Yeah. He's just fly yeah. fishing in Michigan. He's back from the war and he's fly fishing in Michigan. Okay. I, I read something not long ago. What had happened to him in the war was he'd been an ambulance driver and he and his buddies had been blown up by an Austrian mortar. I mean, blown up. The guys around him were blown to smithereens. He had, I can't remember how many, 375 pieces of shrapnel in him. 
He was absolutely physically destroyed. And he wrote this story after he came back. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about an Austrian mortar in that story? He could have started out saying, you know, I was with my buddies and we were just having a bar of chocolate and we all got blown to smithereens and I was six months, I was nearly killed. And then I went fly fishing. You know what I mean? What? But instead, we've got oh, a, you hear a it's story. A guy, it's a guy catching a grasshopper, putting it on a hook, and putting mm -hmm. it out in the stream. And it goes back to what you were saying. It's the iceberg idea. There's something weird and mystical about that story, and that may be what it is. That may be what it is. Mm -hmm. That's what just happened to him. And yet it's about fly fishing. Okay. So the Thanks. part of this R101 story is the end of empire. We just get back to the R101 yeah, yeah, yeah. before we conclude. But I, as I said, you, you alluded to this earlier in my notes I gave you. I was thinking that this is like, I would love to read someday a history of bad ideas. <laughs> yes. Uh, which all of which the criteria have to be, they have to be bad ideas that everyone thought was really good at the time. Yeah. Um, and then because, because remember, airplanes, heavier than air, by the way, were a terrible idea. I mean, look at those great films. They're all crash, crash, crashing. And, and the thing about it was, though, is that, and people unaccountably flew them, even though they knew they were going to die. Um, mm -hmm. But over time, as we get into the teens and then the 20s, there's incremental progress made, wing loading, you know, engine yeah. safety, uh, things that eventually pressurization and all that. Meanwhile, the airships don't evolve. You can't build them. They, I, I don't think they can fail fast enough to improve. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of the, the thing. Yeah, and also, when you, and one one guy dies Actually, in a... that's a really a, good idea. I, 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 that, very good. It never occurred. That didn't occur. Yeah. And, right. and then when you die with the Akron crash, you lose 48 people. Yeah. And a Navy fighter crashes, you lose one guy. Everyone's very sad, but forty-eight. You know, it begins to they begin when that fifty-something on that French airship. You know, they, they, this begins to add up after a while. And you see, um, and, it, and it is the pace of change too, because you say, for example, I, I compare the development of R one hundred and one to a Spitfire in yeah. the thirties, and I mean, it was relatively fast. I mean, you know, relatively cheap and fast, and a lot of them crashed, and they finally got, and they, you know, what I mean, they improved, but the, the pace of turnover was was far greater. I think you're right. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, and it, and it also, I didn't realize this before I read the book, but it, you reinforced a very powerful prejudice of mine that we have this idea that technology changes society, changes culture. But here's a, a classic example of the way that technology wasn't really a very good technology, but yeah. was absolutely imperative for completely cultural reasons. Um, for one thing, they look cool. And then the nationalism part of it. The other people are doing it. We got to do it, you know, so that people keep driving forward to a really unattainable goal, technological goal, not because of the benefits of the technology or the anything inherent in the technology, but it's for purely other reasons. That's it. It's hard. It's, it's hard yeah. to put ourselves back there and and to imagine why you would ever get on that thing headed for Karachi, but they all do. Yeah, and we've left out. Like we've left out the dipsomaniac who was the chief British airship f flyer. We've left out all this cast of characters, as I told you at the beginning. Uh, it's like a John. It's an Agatha Christie novel. It's a story. It's a John Buchan novel. John Buchan probably knew all these people. Turns out he's a social realist. He was just writing about people that he knew. Um, it's a great story. And um, Sam Gwynn, 
you're the author of the His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. And thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having such a great conversation. It's been fun. And I appreciate your, your own insights, which some of which I never even referred to me. So thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 